following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. All right, so over the past several weeks, we've been looking at uh, what the Apostle Paul instructs the Colossians to do. Uh, And these are things that he instructs them as a result of what he says earlier in chapter 3, in the very beginning of chapter 3. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, then this, then do this. And the same type of notion is kind of carried on even into chapter 4 and where we're at right now. So over the past uh, several weeks, we've seen what it looks like for those who have been raised with Christ and what the gospel looks like uh, in our parenting. We've seen what the gospel looks like uh, in our marriages. We've seen what the gospel looks like Uh, in our places of work or our occupations. And for those who've been raised with Christ, this morning we get to see what the Apostle Paul tells us that prayer looks like for the Christian. Now prayer is kind of a a unique thing to Christianity in some aspects, but in some aspects uh, it's really not. Prayer is is found in every major world religion, it's practiced in different ways amongst those religions, but, but they call it prayer or talking to their God of some sorts. Uh, and even agnostics and atheists are known to uh, utter prayers on occasion. Uh, but Christian prayer is unique in some ways as it, as it operates as a line of communication uh, between us and the creator and sustainer of the universe. And it's afforded to us or it's purchased and given to us by Jesus. And when it comes to prayer, it's not just a means of God trying to hear us out on something. Uh, It's not like uh, one of my kids trying to sway me into getting them a new toy. They're not sweet-talking me to get things that they want. That's not the way that prayer operates in Christianity. But, But God longs to hear from us. It's not a burden for Him to hear from us. He desires for us to boldly commune with Him in prayer. Casting our cares on Him because He cares so deeply for us. Yet if we're real and we're honest for a second, Christian prayer is often dysfunctional. Most prayers have uh, some sort of end to them that the Bible doesn't necessarily condone or or, uh, permit or ask us to pray about. Most Christians' dysfunctional relationship with prayer kind of looks like this. We, we kind of do it rarely, uh, and, and even when we do, it's kind of a, an odd list of things that we kind of utter to God. We feel weird doing it, especially if we have to pray out loud, and especially if we have to pray out loud uh, in any group setting. If you uh, want to see a room full of people's eyes hit the floor, uh, just say that we're going to start praying and then ask for someone to start and ask for someone to finish. And if you walk in that room, everybody's eyes, even mine, are on the floor trying to avoid eye contact because if you avoid it long enough, then you're not going to be the one that gets picked. Our prayers are often inconsistent, half-hearted, We use prayer as a tool with intentions of getting temporal things that we want. 
And it easily becomes this bargaining table with God where we try and negotiate. We try and say things like, God, if, if you can just do this, if you can just give me this, then I'll, I'll be better at this. Or I'll do this. God, if you can just give me a 30% raise, then I promise I'll start tithing 10%. That's kind of an unfair equation anyways. You get 30% and God gets 10 of that. Or, or we, we use God as kind of our insider to ChristianMingle.com. That if he just gives us a spouse, we'll be at MC more because it's kind of weird being the only single person at MC or being one of a few single people at MC. But the Apostle Paul here in chapter 4 wants to set us straight on prayer. He wants to give us a robust and thriving prayer life by showing us what prayer is, what our attitude towards prayer should be, where the eyes of our hearts should focus in on in prayer, and overall, what our hearts look like as we participate in a vibrant prayer life. So let's go back to our text this morning. I think it'll be on the screen. Colossians 4.2, and what we're going to do is we're going to divide this up into three sections because we've got one verse, and Paul's saying a lot to us in this one little verse. We're going to divide it up into Colossians 4.2a, Colossians 4.2b, and Colossians 4.2c. And I'll read verse 2a for us. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer. So when we hear, continue steadfastly, in prayer, it's easy for us to take our kind of working definition of prayer and then just continue in that. Now, prayer seems pretty general, pretty simple. And I don't mean that prayer is necessarily complicated, but I think in prayer's simplicity, we've misunderstood it. So what is prayer? Prayer. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, writes that the Apostle Paul uses prayer primarily to get more of God. And I think that's a good biblical definition of prayer. Biblical prayer is the means of being intentional about getting God, more of God for yourself and more of God for others. Now this works itself out in several ways. Uh, but at the root of all prayer should be the desire for more of God. A lot of us are familiar with, with Jesus' model of prayer uh, in Matthew chapter 6. So I just want to look at that real quick. You don't have to turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. I'll read it to you, and then we'll just see how primarily this model of prayer that Jesus gives us is a call for more of God. Matthew 6, it says this, Jesus said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or you could say, uh, more of God's glory manifested in your life. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or more of God's kingdom manifested in your life. Give us this day our daily bread, more of God's provision. And forgive our debts and as we have also forgiven our debtors, more of God's forgiveness and more of God's grace 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. More of God's strength to combat sin. Prayer is the way we plead to God for more of Himself. Prayer is a significant resource given to us by God for us to implore God for more of God. Reformer John Calvin writes this on prayer. But after we have learned by faith to know whatever is necessary for us, more of God, or defective in us is supplied in God and our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom it hath pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, that we may draw from an inexhaustible fountain. It remains for us to seek and in prayer implore of Him for more of what we have learned to be in Him. Prayer recognizes our soul's greatest need. And that's not a new car. That's not a better job. That's not a spouse. That's not perfect health. It's not for less rioting and looting. It's not for a vaccine. It's not for more temporal justice or equality. Certainly those are things that we should pray about. But at the root of prayer, at the foundation of prayer is something more than that. Our prayers aren't aimed on what's finite, but on what, on, but on what is infinite. God. Our prayers should be motivated by an eager anticipation for more of God and more of His sovereign grace to not just fix our circumstances, but to fix us. And we do this by pleading to the Father in the name of Christ, through Christ, who is, as John Calvin wrote, our inexhaustible fountain. And we plead to Him to grant us more of who truly has the power to revive and reorient our hearts and to be what we have learned to be in Christ as those who have been raised with Christ. Now the problem of seeking out what's finite or temporal is that even if you get it, there's only a a momentary sense of comfort. There's only a momentary sense of content. It doesn't satisfy the underlying issue of our lives and it doesn't grant what we actually think it will. It's kind of like having a severed hand and asking a surgeon for a band-aid and not to reconnect what was separated. Now, it seems obvious when we consider stuff. We know that cars rust, houses need repairs. We intend to, even if you get the job you want, you intend to eventually retire from it. But even fixes to major moral issues outside of God are at best short-lived. But when God Himself intervenes by giving us more of Himself, moral issues, which are hopeless because of our bend to immorality, become gospel issues. And the gospel gives hope. Because the gospel is the bucket that we use to dip into Christ, our inexhaustible fountain. And in this way, prayer becomes our overflowing fountain of delight. By intentionally investing in our ultimate joy. 
not our temporary joy. So now that we kind of have a premise of sorts on what prayer is, we can go back to verse 2a and see how the Apostle Paul tells us to pray. Or specifically, what kind of attitude we need to have towards prayer. So let's go back to verse 2a. And it says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, this isn't a new idea for Paul. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. He tells us to uh, pray in every occasion, uh, have prayer be crucial in every situation. And here he uses the words to continue steadfastly. And that can just be translated into be devoted. Be devoted to prayer. But what exactly does it look like to be devoted to prayer? Do you just pray all day long? Or do you never actually have conversations with other people and you just only have conversations with God? Uh, do, you, do you get rid of all your kind of extracurricular hobbies? Just spend your free time praying? Is prayer the, the one thing that we should be like kind of legalistic about? Like is God, if you're not praying, is God disappointed or frustrated or angry at you? The call to be devoted to prayer is kind of like the call to be devoted to a spouse. Our devotion to our spouse doesn't mean that we never leave their side. It doesn't mean that we never go to work. It doesn't mean that we never hang out with other people or have hobbies or do other things or that we're with them every waking moment of the day. Devotion to our spouse looks like commitment to being intentional about time with them. It consciously makes time to invest in a person and in a relationship. Even when you don't feel like doing it. My pregnant wife, I think she went out with our boys, but uh, she spends her days chasing around two crazy toddlers who uh, could, one of them was trying to climb into the baptistry, um, and they, uh, they, they are a handful. And she spends her days while I'm at work chasing those guys around, and then I, did I, I mentioned she's pregnant, right? She's pregnant doing this. So... If we only spent time together when she felt like it, I'm out of luck. Because when I get home from work, however exhausted I feel like I am, she's like ten times more exhausted. She's running on fumes when I get back. And that's the way a devotion to prayer works. Devotion to prayer doesn't mean that you just kind of fit it in when you can. Or you see if you have time to do it. And then if you do, you'll do it. Devotion to prayer means specifically setting time aside to pray. Not just seeing where it fits in. Not just waiting until you feel like your life has, has gone off the rails and you need to get back on really quick. That's what makes prayer a discipline. And I've found that if I don't consciously make an effort to plan prayer as a regular rhythm of my life, I don't do it. You don't always feel like praying. And not every prayer that you utter is going to rattle the gates of hell. Not every prayer that you 
say on your way to work is going to issue in uh, modern-day Pentecost 2.0. You're not just going to start speaking Spanish in the middle of your prayer. The Bible doesn't call us to do that, though. But it does call us to be men and women who are devoted to prayer. So what are some practical things to implement uh, with a goal of being devoted to prayer? Uh, For me, I like to take uh, the days of the week that I know have have, uh, time where I'm going to be alone in them, and I look at those days, and I write down in my calendar, pray. Now, this doesn't help my water bill much because most of the time that I'm alone, I'm in the shower. And as long as I can tune out two toddlers banging on the door, uh, it usually works pretty good for me. Uh, Driving home from work or driving to work is another way that I like to make myself consciously devoted to prayer. I like to, now these these prayers aren't ones that are going to last 30 minutes. It's not going to be ones that uh, feel totally spirit filled. But they're prayers where I can look at my day and see where I specifically need the grace of God to intervene. Uh, Then there are the somewhat obvious ones that uh, most people do, or a lot of people do, uh, praying at dinner. I say a lot of people because uh, in high school growing up, I had a friend who would blatantly tell you that he was not a Christian and didn't believe anything in the Bible, but before he ate anything, he prayed. And I thought that was the most odd thing. He was praying to a God he didn't believe in before he ate a dinner. But we like to use dinner as a time to pray with the boys, so Emma and I uh, will usually lead out a prayer with them. And we've also slowly started to uh, implement this new practice where we will uh, read a Puritan prayer before bedtime with the boys. Uh, Now, do they understand what's being read? Uh, Sometimes I don't understand what's being read. But uh, it does offer a unique opportunity for Emma and I to pray a, a powerfully written psalm or a powerfully written prayer together. And we can do this uh, as an example to the boys so they can visually see what it looks like to be devoted to prayer. Now, uh, when you talk about prayer in a a disciplinary sense like this, uh, it makes it seem kind of like a duty, kind of like a responsibility. And uh, the Apostle Paul shows us, and he shows the Colossians the same thing, uh, that a devotion to prayer does come as a responsibility and a privilege for those who are in Christ. Now the privilege, the privilege seems pretty obvious. Uh, we get to approach, uh, like uh, the liturgy said, the throne of grace, and we get to cast our anxieties on God. But when we see prayer as a responsibility, we're kind of prone to tense up a little bit. It doesn't feel very comfortable to call prayer a responsibility or a duty. Uh, It sounds kind of legalistic a little bit. Why should I have a duty to pray? Why should we 
be so specific on how we pray anyways? <clears throat> well, I want to say that it's because if we don't pray, and we don't pray correctly, we don't spiritually live. We pray to increase our spiritual vitality. John Piper says this in regards to prayer as duty. It's a duty the way it's a duty for a scuba diver to put on his air tank before going underwater. It's a duty the way air pilots should listen to air traffic controllers. It's a duty the way a soldier in combat should clean his rifle and load his gun. It's a duty the way hungry people eat food. It's a duty the way thirsty people drink water. It's a duty the way a deaf man puts in a hearing aid. A devotion to prayer is a devotion to spiritual life. There's no better thermometer for their spiritual intensity in your life than your intensity in prayer. So what would your spiritual thermometer indicate of your spiritual life? We live in a time where you have to get your temperature checked to go in almost anywhere. If we had this prayer thermometer and checked your intensity, checked your spiritual, temp- your spiritual temperature before you came in here, what would it indicate? Is prayer vibrant? Would those closest to you consider you devoted to prayer? Are you experiencing life and renewal in your prayers? Let's go back to verse 2. <clears throat> and we'll go on to verse 2b, and I'll read it all uh, up until then. Apostle says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Now, being watchful in prayer, uh, what does that mean? Watchful uh, for what? Watchful uh, for who? I, I don't know about you all, but I got in a lot of trouble when we went to church for being watchful in prayer. Um, by watchful means when you hear head bowed, eyes closed, uh, you don't do that. And so I would use prayer as a time to be watchful of uh, other people sitting around and seeing. And then you always feel like this special connection with somebody else who's not got their eyes closed and head bowed. And like we're both rebels together. We're in this. So what could it possibly mean to be watchful in prayer? Uh, Now, many of us are already watchful and aware in prayer. Uh, Watchful and aware of physical or temporal things that we need from God. Uh, and Those are the things that most of the time, or many of the times, uh, that our prayers consist of. Uh, you know, we need a new car. God, I need you to help me pay the rent. God, I need, uh, we need a vaccine. I think I might have coronavirus. I really need to go get checked. Please don't let me have coronavirus. Those are the things that we kind of tend to pray for. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't request these things from God. Absolutely we should. We should pray for His provision. We should pray for His resources. We should pray uh, for health. But in this text, I don't think that that's what the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says to be watchful. So I want to look at three ways the Apostle Paul wants us to be watchful in prayer. He wants us to be watchful or focused in community and on mission. Watchful with a focus on gospel maturity and repentance and watchful and focused for the cosmic renewal 
of all things. Now, the first one I won't hit on too much because next week, I think Sam's going to be back, and I think he's going to hit on this one pretty good uh, with the rest of uh, this text. Uh, But I do want to uh, kind of focus in on what it means to be watchful uh, in community and on mission. Uh, Charles Spurgeon writes this uh, in regards to prayer uh, fueling the mission of making disciples. He says, Until the gate of hell is shut up on a man, we must not cease to pray for him. And if we see him hugging the very doorpost of damnation, we must go to the mercy seat and beseech the arm of grace to pluck him from his dangerous position. While there is life, there is hope. And although the soul is almost smothered in despair, we, as Christians, must not despair for it, but rather arouse ourselves to awake the almighty arm. We are to be missionally aware of folks in our life that do not have the gospel. And we intercede for them in our prayer. And that's how we are watchful in mission in our prayers. The second way is to be watchful with a focus on repentance. Uh, One of the, John Calvin says this, one of the requisites of legitimate prayer is repentance. We need to be aware of our inward spiritual battle between the desires of our old and new self that Paul talked about in chapter 3. Like we talked about earlier, our greatest need is for more of God. And repentance-focused prayer requires one to be watchful of the spiritual battles that you're going through in your own life. And it pleads for more of God to mold us into more of Christ. This is why it's crucial for us to be a part of gospel community. To help us see battles that we may not be aware of. To help us see sin coming from the old self back into our lives and attempting to gain a hold in areas that we are unaware of. And inside gospel community, as we're watchful with a focus on repentance for ourselves and each other, we see gospel maturity and gospel growth inside of gospel community. And as we become aware of these things... We aren't just kind of letting them sit on the radar. We have an opportunity with confidence to go to the throne of glory and repent of our sin and repent of where we fall short and repent of the old self creeping its way back into our new self and seek help from our Father to give us more of Himself and rid us of the old self. The third way we seek to be watchful in prayer is with a focus on cosmic renewal or the advent of Christ. It's with an advent focus. Now during the last six months of 2020, I think the weight of a fallen world has felt heavier and heavier and heavier. Each day seems more chaotic and controversial than the day before. And we can physically see with our eyes what the rotten fruit of sin looks like. 
in my lifetime anyways, the hurt of individuals has never seemed so widespread, so publicized, and so just right in front of you. The disunity among all people seems impossible to reconcile. And if a global pandemic didn't do a good enough job of separating us from each other, now we have these different ideologies creeping in and saying, you're going to come this way or you're going to come this way. There's no this way. There's no middle ground. I'm pulling you this way or I'm pulling you this way, and we're going to separate from each other. This is exactly the situation the Colossians found themselves in. They were being pulled by the left, and they were being pulled by the right. And in the midst of these things, going on right now, these are real things, I have felt such a deep groaning in my soul for the day when all is made good and right and true. I've seen my prayers become more and more focused and more and more watchful of the return of our Savior. There's an anticipatory feeling to the way that it feels like my prayers have just naturally went. Prayer for the cosmic renewal of all things is the greatest hope of more of God that we can pray for. We can pray. How do you get more of God than God being with you? And God being face to face in front of you with all things renewed, all things restored. When we can be face to face with Christ, who is the perfect social justice who is the perfect and only vaccine to our greatest virus, the one that reconciles dead sinners to a holy God, I think He's able to reconcile the sinners to each other too. Christ transcends party lines, transcends ideological lines, And he demolishes, as we looked at in the book of Colossians, he demolishes the walls of hostility that are set up between us, and he brings true unity that only the gospel promises. Not policies, not politicians, not protests, but the gospel. And with a watchful heart and prayer, we aren't marking down days trying to put together our own Christian Mayan calendar. We're not writing the next Left Behind series. What we're doing is looking with a hopeful anticipation for the return of Christ. And our prayers simply sound like this, Come, Lord Jesus. And what does the Apostle Paul say is the fruit, the result of this kind of prayer? Let's read our whole text again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The result of a life of devotion to prayer that is watchful is a heart that is consumed with thankfulness. 
How? We get to reflect that it's only by Christ that we have this access to the Father. And it is through prayer that Christ invites us to a deeper, more intimate union with Himself. Through prayer that is devoted and watchful and spirit-filled, we can hear Christ banging on the door of our hearts and pleading to us to know Him more deeply, to cherish Him more deeply. The fact that we can pray to the Father, the fact that we can commune with our God, the fact that we can turn to Him in repentance and the great hope of cosmic renewal of all things came at a cost not for us, but for Christ. And it's freely offered to us. Now, we often, 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 fall short in our prayers. But when we realize that the Christ that sits in the control room of heaven, the control room of the universe, who is preeminent over everything, that He's praying for us, that He's pleading to the Father and interceding to the Father for us, us, sinners who've rebelled against God, sinners who are so easily frightened, sinners who are so prone to be negligent in prayer, we rarely seek Him, but He intercedes for us anyways. And when we come to know that, the sweetness of Jesus seems so prominent. It seems so obvious. And we get a desire to pray not out of the place of duty that we do have, but out of a place of delight, out of a place of praise, out of thankfulness, out of hearts that cherish Jesus. Even when our spiritual temperature isn't looking so hot, it isn't looking so good, Christ sits with the Father praying for us anyways. Praying for ourselves in ways that we don't even think to pray in. And so before we close, I want to read two separate quotes. I'm going to kind of mash them together as a, a painting of the reality of what heaven is like right now. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our own prayer life. That He is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which, we were not, which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that He prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us that we don't even notice. He is praying that our faith not, may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference, for He is praying for me. Let's pray. Father God, what a great privilege it is to come to this seat this throne, not as the rebels that we once were, not as 
a sinful man, but as a man who has been raised with Christ, has been adopted by the Father. And so when we come to you in faith and repentance and pray, we're coming and not just asking our King for something, not just asking our Lord for something, but asking our Father for something. God, even when we so often forget to be mindful of You, to seek You, to cherish You in prayer, that doesn't stop the fact that, Jesus, You intercede for us anyways. And it's every breath we take that is a gift from You. One that You prayed for, one that You died for. And Jesus, as You remain preeminent over all things, and Jesus, as You are the creator and sustainer of all things, You cherish us, You love us, and You desire to hear from us, it's, it's mind-blowing. And so, God, I want to pray that through Your Holy Spirit, we desire to through the gospel, dip into our inexhaustible fountain that is Jesus. And have a, have a desire to pray out of a love for you and not anything else. Help us see the sweetness and the glory of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.